Okay, good evening, everybody. Really good to see you guys. See all the lovers of Christ here. I'm very happy to be in the meeting with you. So tonight's topic for the evening is the worship of God. And, you know, as Christians, when we hear this topic, and when we hear the word worship, and uh, when we check with our experience, obviously this word is very sweet to us, right? Very near, very dear to us. Some of us might have even, uh, we would even say we've had some wonderful experiences, no doubt, growing up worshiping God. And the Bible uh, speaks unequivocally that we should worship God. In many places, the Bible charges us to worship God. There are commandments that tells us to worship God. So this is a very important topic. And tonight, um, I would like to focus in on a particular part of the New Testament where the Lord Jesus himself spoke concerning worshiping God. And so the chapter that we're going to focus in on tonight is John chapter 4. Just a small section there where the Lord has an interaction with the Samaritan woman. And in that interaction, the Lord unveils to us an intrinsic revelation concerning worshiping God. And I would like to add one more thing, which is really the burden for me tonight. It's not that we would just worship God as an act, an action, something we do, but the issue of our worshiping God would cause us to become worshipers. God is not merely interested in us worshiping Him. Yes, He desires that we worship Him. But what he wants also is he wants worshiper, the very person himself who is experiencing the worshiping of God. Do you understand that? So we're going to see that when we get to John chapter 4. <clears throat> now before we start on this topic, I'd like to uh, remind you what the, uh, the theme of the entire Bible is. I want you to take us a moment and consider. If someone asked me, what is the theme of the Bible? What would I say? There are 66 books in the Bible, separated into two testaments. There are 1,189 chapters. There are 31,103 verses in the Bible. Countless number of peoples, countless stories, occurs over millennia, written by 40 or so authors, over 2,000 years or more. And somehow, cohesively, there is a theme in the Bible. So what is that theme? And I would say this. This theme is the theme for any topic we talk about in the Bible. And so with that, I would like to direct you to Roman number one. Roman number one says, the kernel of the divine revelation is that God's ultimate intention is to work himself into us. That is the theme of the Bible. That is how the Old Testament begins. And that is also how the New Testament begins. What does God want? He wants to dispense himself into man. He wants to work himself into man. 
He wants to add himself to man. He wants to mingle with man. He wants to constitute man. He wants to become a part of you. And he wants you to become a part of him. The Bible makes no bones about this. It starts right away. It's very bold. I love it. Chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The scene is set. The stage is there. He's ready to go. And at the end of that chapter, climaxing in chapter 1, is the creation of man. And how does God make man? How does he make man? 220, 6'4", blonde, blue eye? No, that's not how he makes man. He said, let us, let us. It was so important to God, so critical, so crucial, that he slowed down. There was a divine counsel, a consideration. How should we make man? How should we make a creature, a vessel, that we can dispense ourselves into him? How can we make a creature that could contain us, receive us, be mingled with us? So God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. That's Genesis 1.26. If there's ever a verse you can only remember, you should remember this one. So what does this verse tell us? It tells us who man looks like. When you look at man, who do you see? You see God. And actually, that verse alone is enough to let us know God desires to enter into man. I know many times we will continue on with chapter 2, and we tell you there in chapter 2 is the tree of life. And clearly God desires that man would partake and eat of the tree of life. And as a metaphor, as a picture, as a typology, if Adam would have eaten from the tree of life, which is God himself, then something outside of him would have entered into him and become a part of him. So whatever you ate for dinner tonight, an hour ago it was outside of you, and not too long ago it began to enter into you, and right now as you're sitting there it is becoming a part of you. So we understand that. It's very clear. And we appreciate that God would give us such a simple example in chapter 2 to show us God desires to enter into man, become a part of man. But you don't even need to go to chapter 2 to see that. Chapter 1 is good enough with verse 26. You know, I have, um, it's hard to believe, but I do have some faults and defects. And one of, my, uh, one of my defects, for those of you who know me, is I like sodas. And, uh, well, I can afford soda, as you can see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, in particular, I like, uh, I like Coke. I just like plain Coke. And, um, and so, you know, oftentimes I'll drive and I just get, I get the craving. And I'll pull over. I just need to get a Coke. And so I'll go in the store, and uh, there's a big shelf with many, many drinks there. And uh, it's very easy for me to identify which bottle has the Coke inside it. Do you understand? <laughs> I just look for the bottle that has a certain kind of appearance, a certain image and likeness, a certain red and white And when I buy that, and I take it to the counter and pay for it, when I open it, I drink it, what should be inside? 
What if I drank it in sand and started pouring it into my mouth? That's a $20 million lawsuit in America, right? See, we know that when we buy something like that, when it looks a certain way, when it sets something on the outside, it appears a certain way, we know what should be inside it. So Genesis 1.26 tells us that when you look at man, who do you see? You see God. You see the image of God. You see the likeness of God. And so that verse alone tells you what should be inside of man. God should be inside of man. That's how the Bible begins. Not just a record creation and did, did this happen and how old was the earth or the dinosaur and all this stuff. Forget about it. Chapter 1 starts showing us, in God's view, what his original and ultimate intention for man is, which is to flow himself into man. Of course, obviously, we know this does not occur with Adam. Adam failed to do this. But that did not stop God. And so, eventually, Christ came to fulfill what Adam could not do. And so how does the New Testament begin? Chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. I want you to picture for a minute there. You know, we, we, uh, we're at a particular time of the year where uh, those particular scenes that we grew up with, right? The manger, the hay, the animals, the magis, the shepherds, the angels, the frankincense, the myrrh, and then the little baby, baby Jesus, right, Ty? Okay, now recently I had a baby, and she's three months old, and you know what I love doing every day? I love holding her in my arms. There is nothing like it, okay? So imagine you're there, and Mary, through Mary, the Holy Spirit brought forth the God-man Christ. And Mary, whether she knows it or not, probably not, she's holding baby Jesus. She's holding Emmanuel. And so let's say you were there, you know, and eventually, you know, when the relatives come, they all want the same thing. They want to hold Samantha, my, my girl. So they'll scoot up and go, can I hold her? So eventually, you know, you kind of scoot up. So you go, excuse me, Mary, uh, can I hold the baby? So Mary says, sure, here you go. And you're cradling this baby in your arms. And do you realize who that is you're cradling? That is Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That is God. That is God in your arms. You are holding the embodiment of the fullness of the Godhead. According to Colossians 2. <clears throat> That's how the New Testament begins. It picks up where Genesis 1 left off. 
It says, you know the ultimate intention that God desires of man? Well, here it is. Finally, there is a man, a person, a vessel, a baby, a creature on the earth that is mingled with divinity. He was brought forth out of a woman to have humanity, but he is full of the spirit of divinity. And so then clearly, what is his name? Emmanuel, God with us. And so then we are not surprised then that in chapter 2, that some magi from a distant land come to worship the Lord, right? And he even says that they bow down and worship him and offer certain gifts. And so that is the first time worship is mentioned in the New Testament. And as we go through the Gospels, there are other cases of people who would come and worship the Lord. And so with that, we have a certain understanding that to worship God is in some way a recognition that this person is more than man, something special about him. And eventually even to realize this is God, something divine is here, something all something reverential, something significant. And like the Magi who somehow had some kind of an understanding of this baby, this infant, and the, and the significance, they would bow down and worship this infant. And so a lot of times I would say this is our understanding of the, the word worship. And maybe even we would somehow would like to worship in this way. <clears throat> However, in John chapter 4, and now we come to point number 2, the Lord, in an interaction with a Samaritan woman, he talks about worship. And the reason why I want to focus in on this particular chapter tonight is because of the adjective he puts in front of the word worship. And so Roman numeral 2 says, God desires the real worship that we contact God, the Spirit, with our spirit to drink of the living water. And the real worshipers that we are infused with God and live out God to become a people according to what God is. This is the living testimony of Jesus. And so this is drawn from two particular verses in chapter 4. I'd like us to read it now, and then we'll come back and give the context of these verses. So, with brothers, can you please, with a bold spirit, read John chapter 4, verse 23. It's highlighted in bold for you. And sister, you finish with John chapter 4, verse 24. Brothers, ready to go. So the backstory to this is the Lord is traveling and he stops in Samaria and he's thirsty. The God-man Jesus is thirsty. And he's there for a reason. He planned it. Perhaps from eternity he's planned it. If you read in chapter 4, which those of you who did the Bible reading challenge with us, I don't know what day that would have been. 
But he planned to be there, and he met the woman there. And he asked the woman for a drink. He begins a conversation with her. He asks her for a drink. And they begin to discourse. And in their discourse, he begins to unveil himself to her. Not just the Messiah, but he unveils himself to her as the living water. He unveils to her as someone that she should take into her being. And so verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman then said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, who am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank of it himself, as well as his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall by no means thirst forevermore. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water, gushing up into eternal life. And then some verses later, the Lord shows her how to take in this water. He says, but an hour is coming, and it is now. That now is still now. That now hasn't changed. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truthfulness, for the Father also seeks such to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truthfulness. And I want to direct your attention in verse 24. There are two mentioning of the word spirit here. One is capitalized, which indicates the divine spirit, who is God. And the other one is a lowercase spirit, which indicates our human spirit that was created by God. So God made man with human spirit so that we can contact him. And God tells the Samaritan woman, this is how I want you to worship me. Not bow down to me. I want you to exercise your spirit to contact me. And when you do that, I will become a living water that will flow into you. So what God desires is not that just we recognize him. I recognize you. You're the holy one. You're the overcomer. You're the victorious one, the ascendant one, the resurrected one. So I bow down and I worship you and I pay homage to you and I humble myself before you. That's good. But you know what happens after that? Nothing. Nothing happens after that. Then I go home. 
And God is still God, and I am still who I am. And that does not meet God's ultimate intention. What God desires is to flow into man. And so God tells her, what I want is not for you to bow down to me, to recognize my deity, my grandeur, my greatness. I want to flow into you. And the way to do that is, I created you with a human spirit so you can contact the divine spirit. And when you exercise your spirit, then Christ will become a living drink to you. And he will flow into you. But then what happens when he flows into you? Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall by no means thirst forever. But the water that I will give him will become in him. Something's going to happen inside of you. This water is going to do something in him. There's going to be an effect, a byproduct. You can't be the same after this. When God flows into man, he mingles with man. He reconstitutes man. He infuses man. You can't be the same. You will not walk away the same. Not like the Magi. They came and worship, And when they left, there was no more God added into their being than when they first came. But what God wants here, what the Lord wants here, he wants to add himself into this woman by her exercising her spirit to contact him as a spirit, so she would drink him in, and when she drinks him in, this living water which would enter into her, would do something in her, organically, transform her, renews her, conforms her, sanctifies her, so that eventually there's an issue, there's a result. Out of her, a fountain of water gushing up into eternal life. That's not the same person anymore, is it? This is what God wants. And so when we do this, again and again, day after day, learn how to exercise our spirit. You know, some of you I've been getting with on the campus, um, not all of you, but some of you I meet with, and one of the things that I'm very burdened, I've been trying to help you with, and I think you are starting to really experience it, is how to contact your spirit. If there's one thing you will learn in college, you must learn this. To be a person who would know how to exercise his spirit. Because when we exercise our spirit, we touch God. And he becomes a living drink to us. And he flows into our being. He adds himself to us. We have more God after we exercise our spirit than, when, than before we started exercising our spirit. But this God doesn't sit there like a marble in a glass. He enters in like the food you ate. You know, I got my degree in biology. I could just tell you for the next 20 minutes what's happening right now in your digestive system as the food you ate. But God, you see, he likens us receiving him like eating and drinking to show us that when God enters into man as something of pleasure and satisfaction, I would say even heavenly nutritious, that there is an interaction, a metabolism, a heavenly spiritual metabolism that occurs in our being, and that metabolism works something into us, so that basically what is said in the previous chapters fulfilled, that somehow we decrease and somehow he increases. 
that the old element of us, the faulty, the defect, the fallen, the degraded element of our being, that gets decreased, and the element and essence of Christ gets increased. And when that happens, not only do we have the experience of worshiping Him, but then we become true worshipers. Our entire being is affected. So my worship now is just not something I do on a particular day, at a particular time. Not just an act or an event, but my very being as I live, as I move, as I walk, is a worship to God. And God just doesn't gain people who act and worship Him. He gains people who have become true worshipers. They are infused with the element of God Himself in their being. And this is very simple. This is very simple. All it is is God just wants us to exercise our spirit. And it is very enjoyable because He likens it to a living drink, living water, right? And you know water is easier to take in than food. So it is very easy. Okay, finally, and this is the last point, worshiping God is related to serving God. <clears throat> we get this from Matthew 4 and a number of other places in the New Testament, like in Romans 1 and in Timothy. I can't go through them all tonight. I refer you to your local full-timers. But in Matthew 4, the Lord Jesus, and you have to pay attention here, in, in his last uh, temptation with the devil, before he begins his ministry, the Lord is proven through his temptation to be qualified. So right after he's baptized, chapter 3, in chapter 4, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by the devil, to prove that he is qualified to carry out his earthly ministry. And there were three temptations that occurred. And the last one is recorded. The devil sought that the Lord would worship him. So, not only is God desiring our worship, but the devil also desires that we worship him. There's a battle going on here in this universe between God and the devil, and we are stuck in the middle. And either we will lean one way to worship God, or we will lean the other way to worship the devil. And it didn't matter to the devil that this person, Jesus, is the God-man. He came to him to tempt him. And he asked the Lord, if you worship me, I'll give you all the glory and all the kingdom of the world. And the Lord responded to him in verse 10, chapter 4. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan. Lock that phrase in your memory bank. Go away, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship. And the Lord's Responding as a man, meaning a man. If you are a man on the earth, which is who I am at this time when you were trying to tempt me here, devil. You, man, shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Obviously, this is quoted from Deuteronomy. And so what's interesting here is the Lord links these two things together. They seem to not have anything to do with each other worship and serve, but the Lord links it here together. And in other parts of the New Testament, according to the language, the very fine language that Paul uses in, his, in the writing of his epistle, he also links 
serving and worshiping together. So we know that to serve the Lord is a form of worshiping him. Okay, why is this important? Well, <clears throat> it's important because our worshiping God, that is, our contacting God, our enjoyment of God, through our spirit, to take him in as the living drink, is somehow going to be related to us serving him. That if I am going to serve God, then first, before I do anything, God desires that I contact him in my spirit to enjoy him as a living water. And then out of that will issue something that will gush out of my being, and then I will serve him. And so to finish up here in the last section of verses, then the woman left her water pot and went away into the city and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I have done. Is this not the Christ? They went out of the city and came to him. And many of the Samaritans from that city believed into him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I have done. So in this chapter, after the Lord speaks to her concerning contacting him in spirit, then she does that. She contacts him in spirit and she drinks him as the living water. And something began to operate in her being. And as a result, as, a, as an issue, she went back to the city and she began to testify of him, declare him, make him known. She served him. And other people also came to drink of him. So I say this because, you know, uh, this summer, like the last summer, we had a lot of students who served with us on campus for the summer internship, right? And uh, so this summer is coming. I think you had a meeting where you talked about it, where in the summer we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to testify of the Lord Jesus to other students, to declare him, to make him known like this woman, to tell others everything he's done for us. And we know that these two words are connected to each other, worship and serving. And so what it shows us is that if we are to be effective in serving the Lord, and especially for those of you who have already planned to serve this summer, and those of you who are thinking about it, and I hope you do, it's a wonderful opportunity, that this summer we need to have a breakout we need to have a breakout drinking time. Every day, every morning, every week, we need to start off by contacting God in our spirit. Before we walk on that campus, before we man a table, before we pass out a track, before we pass out ice cream, before we talk to anyone, we need to talk to God first. Amen. We need to contact God in our spirit. Contact God, then contact man. And so this summer, how about this summer? Let's make a decision this summer. In the internship, it will be a drinking time full of the living water. Every day, I plan to meet Jesus at the well. And I want to have a conversation with him. And I want to exercise my spirit to contact him 
as the Spirit. So he will become a living drink, a refreshing, thirst-quenching, life-giving, God-imparting, essence-infusing, element-transfusing drink that would add God into my being so that I can never be the same. And then when I'm full, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. Something in me has decreased. Something in Christ has increased. Then it will be so easy, so natural, so wonderful to contact others, to talk to others, to let them know, come see a man. Come see a man. Come to the Ice Cream Connect. Come see a man. Come to the welcome dinner. Come to the Bible study. Come see a man. And when you get there, he's going to want to give you a drink too. So this is what God desires. He desires that we would worship him, which is to contact him with our spirit, so he will be a living drink to us. And eventually, by drinking him, we'll be produced as the true worshipers. Not just something we do, but our very being will be affected. So that the Father will say, look, there it is. I'm seeking this. I've sought this. The hour is now, and there it is. I can point to the earth who are the true worshipers. They're full of the living water. Okay? Okay, so that concludes tonight's meeting. I wish we could have more time to talk about drinking, calling on the Lord, and exercise the Spirit. That would have to be another time. But there's a portion in the back here that will continue with some of the fellowship that we had. So maybe right now we can break up into groups and have some reading after we have some overflow.